So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, man fans. Ollie Mann here with your monthly magazine show. As we edge out of winter, here's what's coming up today. He was awful. He was a horrible person. Like, he was such, such a bastard. At one point, I used the word wanker because my brother had taught it to me. <laughs> Who do you believe when you don't know what to believe about your own family? One listener's life story. Plus, it might be the case that having sex with friends is one of the few things that he hasn't done. Alex Fox advises a listener lusting after casual sex with his close friends. And Ollie Peart gets dust-sucking. It's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters. And we've had various furious international listeners reaching out about one particular subject this month. Dieter Schrieber got in touch via Twitter, at The Modern Man, and says, Ollie, I've just had to stop listening to your January episode because Ollie Peart butchered the South African barbecue word braai by calling it bray. Please know it is pronounced braai. This will keep your South African audience happy, as there is nothing more sacred to us than a braai. Uh, equally incensed by <laughs> Ollie Peart's slot last month uh, was Alyssa in Toronto, who says, Ollie, your show is a regular highlight of my podcast rotation, and I just got around to buying you some beers. Thank you, Alyssa. But... I also wanted to write you this note because, much as I love The Modern Man, your most recent Zeitgeist segment caused me great spiritual pain as a Canadian. Here in Canada, cedar plank salmon is practically a national dish. Settlers learn the technique from First Nations on the West Coast who cook salmon on western red cedar. So the very thought of A, using plywood, and B, nailing the fish to a dry board is just so wrong. But we can set this right. Here are some tips if you want to try this again. First, you absolutely must use a cedar plank to get the right flavour, untreated. And before you use the plank, immerse it in water for at least an hour, and preferably overnight. (laughs) I'm not sure overnight levels of preparedness are really in uh, Mr Pitt's wheelhouse. Uh, Next, you have two options. Marinate the salmon, or prepare a glaze. There are lots of recipes online, but the best generally involve maple syrup. Yeah, I find when Canadians give you culinary tips, they generally involve maple syrup. Uh, Finally, when it comes to cooking, just rest the salmon on the soaked plank, on the barbecue grill, and close the lid. Although I recommend that you watch it and keep a spray bottle of water handy for flare-ups. That that is a pro tip, actually, isn't it? Uh, I hope you try this, because it really does taste amazing. Well, to be fair, Alyssa, even the bastardised version that Ollie made last month did look pretty delicious on our Zoom call. Uh, But I will pass on your advice to him. Uh, because I imagine if anybody knows about winter barbecue, it is uh, a Torontonian. So hopefully we can close that chapter there. Um, But if uh, you, (laughs) despite our editorial injustices, would like to help fund this show, like Alyssa did, so that, I don't know, perhaps in future we could afford, for example, a part-time barbecue correspondent to ensure we don't offend any more national sensibilities, uh, please do chuck us some cash. Um, Press pause do it now. If you like this podcast, know that in these tough times, it is your contributions helping us keep afloat. Uh, Our new donors this month include Joe Nisbet, Andrew Barron, Warwick Finch, Jim O'Hara, 
You are all beautiful people. Why not join them and support this show at modernmanwith2ends.co.uk? Just click Beer Money and your friendly, local, independent podcast team. Thank you with all our hearts. Uh, Now, coming up on today's show, you will learn what demisexuality is. Uh, You will learn what the power mode of a loop sounds like. And you'll learn how to blag yourself into the jacuzzi at the Marriott in Portsmouth. Let's go. Time for the zeitgeist. Your trends tested with a man who's now frightened to pronounce anything about barbecue. It's Ollie Peart. Yeah, I think I've pissed off a lot of South Africans. I mean, if our mailbox is anything to go by and you take it to mean sort of 1% of people that are actually affected by the issue right in, then yes. I pronounced Bry Bray because the expert that I was speaking to about barbecues was called Tom Bray, right? And (laughs) my brain sometimes sometimes malfunctions and i got a little bit confused and then when we were on the podcast i did think oh i think i've pronounced that wrong but i just kept going because no one noticed yeah there's no one in south africa i was wrong i apologize deeply to our south african listeners i am sorry well you should have seen what happened when i had to introduce ian dunt on lbc Uh, anyway time (laughs) to uh with how you did on your challenge from last month Andrea in Manchester tasked you with finding the easiest, trendiest ways to clean your home. Do you now have a sparkly environs all around? Yeah, in all fairness, yeah. My house has never been cleaner because I have managed to get hold of a whole bunch of, you know, cleaning products, gadgets and gizmos. Um, And the first thing that arrived through my door was from a company called Karcher. Karcher, yes, Germans, and they make um, Germans. They <laughs> are Germans, yes. <laughs> Post-Brexit way of filtering every technological product. Hard-wearing sort of like garden leaf-blowing stuff is how I think of Karcher. Well, uh, yeah, they make um, uh, pressure washers, and they're very yeah. well known for being yellow. Everything's yellow that okay. they make. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they, uh, rather than sending me a pressure washer, because I didn't really have anything I wanted to pressure wash really uh they sent me how would why would you turn down a pressure washer they didn't offer me a pressure washer i thought you were just saying someone offered you a free pressure washer and you said i mean i just feel like a pressure washer is one of those things i will never buy i will never part with my cash for a pressure washer but i'm so in the market for a free pressure wash that's a weekend yeah yeah if someone (laughs) wants to send me a pressure washer by all means send it the first thing i would do with a pressure washer is draw a cock and balls on my patio absolutely because you can wash it straight off afterwards exactly you get the instagram points and you get the fun anyway right so what did they send you i'm going to show you this because i've got it here they sent me this (laughs) okay so it looks like a stapler in profile but then you just (laughs) turn it over at the bottom and it's wider at the bottom like maybe a steam iron it is an electric cloth (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> every time I've used a cloth, I've, I've thought if only there could be current running through this. What they say this is for is windows, but you can use it on any surface, right? I'm a bit jealous. I'd like a novel window cleaning solution in my house right now. They're filthy. Well, look, what you do is you have a little canister thing here. You fill it with water and a bit of a, a cleaning solution. And then yeah. you press this button here. I don't know if you'll be able to hear this. You press this button. Hang on. Hmm. Can you hear a little that? tap tap. What that is is a pump. It's pumping the water into the cloth here, uh-huh. right? The right amount, and then you press this button. Wow! Something for Alex. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, you could use it for that if you really wanted to. And it's a little bit like an electric sander. And then the idea is you use it on your windows, you use it on your surfaces, and it's just a, a little bit of extra oomph. Because I really, I'm trying to, I mean, I, I have well-equipped wrists. You know, if I push hard on a cloth, I get, mm-hmm. I think, maximum use out of that cloth. What am I missing by not having that? Um, well, I think this might be one of those rare occasions where we agree. Uh, fuck all is the short answer, Ollie. <laughs> this thing is £89, and I'm sorry, yeah. Karcher, I have used your pressure washers in the past, and they are fantastic, but this mm. thing is a complete and utter waste of time. Oh, I, I just... It, it, it makes no difference. It's mm. big. I've got nowhere to store the thing, so it mm. sits under my sink. Well, uh the talking point where I thought you would start, because it's the zeitgeist, <laughs> was robot vacuums. And I say big talking point because although it's been 10 years worth of everyone talking about it, most people still don't have one and they're still developing them and they're making them better all the time. It's interesting you say that because I didn't know this. The um, robot hoovers have been around since the 90s in some yeah. capacity. Well, it would have looked like Rosie in the Jetsons, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the 90s. <laughs> You'd need a special room just to hold it. They seem to be everywhere, and actually, searches for them peaked over the Christmas of last year. Like, loads of people buying them. And actually, I don't know about you, but I saw on my Instagram feed especially, loads of people with robot hoovers going, look at my robot hoover, and they were posting that it's fallen off a cliff and stuff like that. Which is counterintuitive in a way, because the selling point of a robot vacuum cleaner was supposed to be, you've got a busy life, you're out and about all the time, but this thing can clean your house for you whilst you're not at home. Mm. And yet, searches for them are peaking at the very time that everyone is locked in their home with their family and, in a way, really have the time to be cleaning. Why is that? You know, you're spending more time in your house. I mean, it, and it gets messy. I think we've all experienced this. My, I, I literally clean one part of my house, turn around to clean another part, go in the last part, and it's just as messy as when I left it five seconds ago. Or maybe people are lonely and they want to chat to it. I don't know. I, I, you know what? I don't think that's so ridiculous. I'm sure there are people that have been talking to their Henry the Hoovers that have got eyes on. And the ones that go around kind of, you know, in an animated way, they are little Mm. creatures, aren't they? They are a bit anthropomorphic. And actually, I I reached out to uh, Roomba, or iRobot, actually, the company's called. They make the Roomba robot Hoover. And it's probably the most well-known one. I think they have like 70% of the market or whatever. I think I'm right in saying they started as a military company. They made military technology and then thought, oh yeah, we could turn this killing machine into a vacuum cleaner. They were going to send me, in fact, they did send me their uh, i7 Plus robot Hoover, which is um, sounds amazing because it goes around your living room and then it empties itself in like a docking thing. The strain involved in emptying a Hoover once a week. My God, we all needed a solution (laughs) to avoid that. Exactly. But, (laughs) I ran into a bit of a snag. At the beginning of January, they sent this thing. And mm. then a bloke turned up to my door and said, um, yeah, I've got a parcel for you, but you're going to have to pay 100 quid because the import duties haven't been paid because it, it got sent from the Netherlands. I was like, what? Well, I'm not going to pay that. I wasn't even sure what it was <laughs> at, at first. He goes, don't worry, we'll try again. I went through this whole rigmarole and basically politics got in the way. So my robot Hoover is currently stuck in a warehouse in Southampton. Okay, that's a shame. I'm just curious about the self-emptying thing. Mm. Because you you said it self-empties into a docking station. Yeah. But then presumably you then have to empty the docking station. Like that doesn't take itself down to the dump, does it? Well, no, exactly. It just means you don't have to empty it as often. So I've uh, I've got I've actually been sent another Hoover. This isn't a robot Hoover. It's by Samsung. It's called a VS90 Jet. 
It's funny, isn't it, how they have these incredibly kind of dynamic and futuristic and masculine names now. Like, they, they sound like models of microwaves or of phones, not of... Like, in the old days, it was just like, sort of, the dust sucker, you know? Now it's the V500 Plus. Well, this is it. We talk about, like, gender-neutral toys and stuff. I mean, this yeah. thing has very, very clearly been aimed at men. Mm. Men. Look at it. It's like the Swiss Army knife of Hoovers, right, this thing. It comes, what does it's it like, have? Well, it's cordless for a start, so you can go around with it. It's got a, a you know, the, like the thin one for getting in like the corners. It's got that. It's got a brush. It's got a, a bendy bit, so you can like you clip that on. So whatever you clip onto the end, you can bend round corners. It's got. Be a, honest. When it comes to vacuum extensions, yes. do you ever use them, or do you keep them in the cupboard and then they fall on your head every time you open the cupboard? But you just leave the main one on. I use them. Do you? I am okay. a huge fan of the narrow one. I use that on everything. I've cleaned okay. an entire rug with that thing. But no, this I'm, glad, I'm glad you exist as a consumer. Good. All right, good. That's good to hear. <laughs> They're not but just manufacturing that... pointless bits of plastic so they can say it comes with lots of things. This thing as well, though, it comes with an electric mop. So it's got like a mop attachment you can put. Wow. And you know, like, um, you know, the normal motorized bit you get on a Hoover. It's got like the little brush on it and it sucks up through that. It's got yeah. two of those. It's got one of them, normal size, and it's got a mini one. The mini one. I didn't think this is something I needed in my life. This thing is amazing. Is it light as well? Very light, yeah. I mean, it's really expensive. This thing is £600. Wow. Yeah. But they also sent it with another product that they sell called a clean station. This is basically a bin that is also a hoover. So what you do is you take the canister off the hoover and you clip it into the bin and it sucks all the stuff out of the canister into a bag in this bin, right? And then it lets you know when you need to empty the bag. Because when you normally empty a Hoover, you tap it out and dust yeah. goes fucking everywhere. Yes, it does. And that is what is really irritating about the bagless ones. I had yeah. one of the posh Dyson ones 10 years ago and I just got sick of getting covered in dust like um, the baddie in Home Alone. But it's another 200 quid. So you're, <laughs> it's so much money. And the vacuum from iRobot, which you haven't received yet, how much does that retail for? It's 799.99. Okay, so a similar price, actually. And I wonder if it has some benefits, like stairs. Yeah, well, this is it, isn't it? I mean, if you... Like, the robot hoover is going to be great for my living room and my dining room because it's one space. We're in it probably 80% of the time in our house. But yeah, it can't do the stairs. So you need the handheld thing. So say you do want a robot hoover and you live in a house with stairs, you need two hoovers. There's also just the thing of, you know, a lot of people listening to this are quite careful about what they buy these days so as not to waste stuff. I mean, do you, you don't need an electric bin. You don't need a robot vacuum cleaner. This is true. There's special bags that go in the electric bin, which have like yeah. a plastic bit at the top. I bet there are. I know your game, Simple Human. You know, you make it look nice, don't you? <laughs> Forever tied into buying your weirdly shaped bags. Why? It's a bag. Yeah, but it, it, there, there is a drive uh, to, to try and make these, by some companies anyway, to try and make these things more environmentally friendly. And uh, a company that reached out to me uh, called Loop, who are based in the UK, were quite keen to push their Hoover. So I've got another Hoover. Uh, the guys that uh, set it up actually used to work for Dyson, and their sort of driving force behind it was to make the thing more durable, longer lasting, and therefore environmentally friendly. So they wanted to produce something where you have a really good vacuum cleaner, going to last you for ages, you can replace all the bits if you need to. That's good, because that is a problem, isn't it, with some of the high-end ones? You can't replace the bits. Well, this is it. So it, it turned up pretty much at the same time as the Samsung one, and the difference between the two is noticeable. I mean, 
this it's it's like the difference between an old Nissan Micro and a, and a Bentley. The Loop being the Nissan Micro, presumably. You've already raved about the Samsung. No, no, no. The Loop being the Bentley. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in the how much does it retail for then? Fifty grand. <laughs> it's seven hundred pounds. So it's a hundred. It's a hundred pounds more than the Samsung. Yeah, you'd it's imagine... not because you have to buy your stupid bin. It's the same. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's it's a really solid thing. I've and I've actually got it here because when when they, they of course you have. Up, no. Once you find the vacuum cleaner of your no, dreams, wait. you take it everywhere with you. <laughs> no, I mean I think I would just to show people, but yeah. it's the sound of this thing. It's a bit like a spaceship. Hang on, this is just a small part of it because you can take it apart. Oh, look, it's quite pretty. Yeah, yeah, you got like. I mean, I say that it's white plastic. Yeah, but it's got a cool logo. It's got a cool logo, yeah. So, um, right, listen to this. Okay, you ready? Right, normal. Nice. But wait, here we go. Oh, it's going to go super. We're going space age. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> how yeah. good it? How good is that? That's, I can go. Yeah. I can go down. I'm ready to take off, Ollie. I'm ready for take off. Here we go. Yeah, listen to that. Does it make that sexy noise when you're actually like cleaning up? Dog turds, though, as well. Well, I've never tried to hoover up a dog turd. I think well, you know it would what make I mean. a hideous Clumps mess. Of stuff. <laughs> yeah, you go around the house and you'll be like, there's an extra dirty bit. Yeah. Let's go power mode. And then you just plus it up and you, oh, I love it. It's great. I, 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 I can see it. that. Yeah, I know. I didn't think I'd be, this challenge has surprised me somewhat. <laughs> I didn't think I'd be quite so excited about testing hoovers. I'm quite pleased, though. You know, you've had a look at three cutting-edge vacuums, and the yes. one that you like is the British startup, which is environmentally friendlier. Yeah, I like. I didn't think I just, you would. I thought I, you'd say it'd be a, it was actually a bit rubbish because it's the first-generation one. I think that that it is heavier than the Samsung one. It's a bit more sort of you know bulky and clunky, and actually some of the design bits are a bit annoying. But you know, the, you, you know, you know, it's going to last you for years. I mean, it genuinely, it's going to, it will last for. You could drop the thing on the floor, chuck it out your window if you wanted to. Why would you chuck a vacuum cleaner out a window? Like even Rockstar behaviour doesn't stretch to vacuum cleaners. Lock, lockdown's I mean, stressful. Just, it's just not a cool thing to do to destroy a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> Never seen it done. Hoover drop. <laughs> what about the products that you're using around the house, though? I mean, presumably. There's a lot of uh, innovation in trying to make those more environmentally friendly as well. Oh, uh, yeah. And and actually, even from some of the like the big players and stuff are trying to do that. Unilever have announced that by like 2030, they want to make all of their uh, cleaning products not using fossil fuels. So uh-huh. things like, I think it's soda ash, which is used in laundry detergents and stuff. That's like really fossil fuel heavy. And there's a, another company uh, based in the UK. It's called Clean. It's a subscription service for cleaning products. And they're environmentally friendly, UK-sourced cleaning products that get okay. shipped to you every month. So is it like a box that turns up on your doorstep like HelloFresh? It's a random selection of products? Yeah, it's exactly that. And then they send you an email telling you what's in it and that kind of thing okay. and how to use it. So they sent me one of their boxes to give a bash. Um, and I got a stainless steel cleaner. I got a furniture and floor tincture i bet you were right out of tincture though i got some uh minty toilet cleaner oh nice and some um eco anti-back spray does it give you pleasure when you go for a crap that your toilet smells of mint do you know what the mint toilet cleaner does smell amazing is it i mean presumably actually made of mint not a synthetic mint it's got mint mint extract in it it's a very strong minty smell this thing but because because of the way it's bottled if you, if you buy the stuff off the supermarket shelf that's quite industrial and that kind of thing, you mm. ain't you ain't gonna sort of drink it. 
not that you would. But this stuff, like, I mean, <laughs> please, it smells. Please, it please smells good enough. <laughs> Drinking mint toilets. No, no, no. But it smells good enough to like put on ice cream, right? Yeah. Well, Andrea, I hope those uh, experiences assist you in some way in your cleaning. I mean, what's the conclusion to all this, Ollie? Get a cordless Swiss Army style does everything Hoover that you can use around the house because it is just. I mean, you lit. You just feel like I don't know. I mean, it's as close as you get to having a gun in your house and shooting things. So uh, it's quite, <laughs> it's quite fun. If you're not bothered about making it fun, but you just want to make the whole thing a little bit easier and a bit nicer, if, if you do want to give the Eco subscription box a go, actually, Clean have uh, given us a discount code, which you can find on our website. But ultimately, cleaning is boring. It's barely changed in the last few hundred years. I mean, the vacuum cleaner was a pretty big development, to be fair. If if you really don't like it and you find it boring, get a cleaner. Well, if you have a challenge that you would like to set Ollie to do, uh, preferably something these days where he doesn't have to leave the house, uh, then mm. fill in the feedback form on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Uh, Ollie, would you like to know what your challenge is for next month? Yeah, so long as I can take my vacuum, I'll do anything. <laughs> Uh, It's from Tom in Stoke Newington who says, uh, after spending a year basically indoors, uh, I have very little to show for my time. I have no interest in baking or knitting or learning the flags of the world. I am an outdoorsy type. I like skiing and surfing. You're relating, aren't you, thus far? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Me me and Tom. Bezzies. So, can Ollie Pitt learn a new outdoorsy skill without leaving his house? We're looking for an outdoorsy skill like skiing or surfing that you could learn inside so that you could really put the technology to the test. I mean, what technology? Like uh, VR? It's never far from your mind, is it? No, Just I love it. Just pops out. VR! Yeah. <laughs> I, lo- yeah. I love VR. Yeah, yeah, it's great. So you've got, what have you actually got? What's your kit that you've got at home now? I've got an Oculus Quest 2. So does that have on it things that you can learn? Because I don't know what kind of thing, but like it would be fun, for example, if you could learn to fish oh i don't know if it's outdoorsy but microsoft have released their new flight simulator you might have seen the news <laughs> about it but they have and but they've released it in virtual reality and Ollie, um, if you want to learn to fly a plane and then try yeah. it out on the next show and see whether it's actually something you've learned digitally we'd be really keen for you to do that i mean if someone's happy to just lend me a plane to test out my skills in <laughs> then maybe i'll give it a bash there's a a, a sailing game it's okay. supposed to teach you how to race and things is that something you can do near you because you've got lots of water around you (laughs) there is lots of water it's called the sea yeah that's quite near me yeah okay well we'll leave it up to you right find a skill learn a new skill but actually learn it using vr or any kind of internet-based resource right and then put it to practice in the real world and see whether you've learned sufficiently so well hang on so i have to learn learn all the skills online digitally or whatever Mm. and then literally plunge myself Yes. Into the thing without having done it in the real world at all. That's right, yes. Right, we should uh, take a moment to thank our sponsors. Uh, Support for the Zeitgeist comes from Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. And big news, Ollie. Yeah, Manscaped have just released their new cologne. It's called Refined. I thought it was going to smell like balls, if I'm honest, Ollie, but it didn't. This is the danger, isn't it? It is. I mean, they're a company that, as we've explored before, you know, are very well known, trusted by over two million men for ball trimming and Mm -hmm. are excellent at that service. And part of what they offer is like creams and deodorising scents for your testicles. Yes. I did kind of think, do they really want to roll out this brand into something I spray on my face? But it actually smells really nice, doesn't it? It It, it doesn't remind me of my balls when I'm walking around wearing it. It's good for me as well. Cruelty free. 
don't test on animals, 100% vegan, paraben-free. I mean, we've been talking about cleaning products. This is all good. I mean, yeah. and it smells good too. If you would like to complete your grooming game by trying out Manscaped Refined Cologne Signature Scent, uh, it's one of the products that you can buy at manscaped.com by using the code MAN. You get 20% off and free shipping. That's the international website, but if you go on there and use the drop-down, you can select your country from the list... That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code M-A-N-N. Look good, smell good, feel good with Manscaped. Oh, I will, Ollie. You're looking me straight in the eye when you said that. <laughs> uh, see you next month. See you next month, Ollie. Uh, in a moment, you will meet Manfan Olivia, whose family's secrets came to a head last summer. But first, it's time for our record of the month. It's this by Stephen Wilson. It's called Personal Shopper. And all 10 minutes of this dystopian synth-pop classic in the making is available to stream now. We love telling your stories on this show. And following my interview with Andrew last month, uh, another listener, who we are calling Olivia, reached out via the feedback form on our website and told us her incredible story, which, like Andrew's, has a pivotal moment during lockdown. Uh, A quick warning, if you would like a heads up to some of the difficult themes we discuss in the interview, do check the show notes. Uh, It's a story about her relationship with her father, and how it's evolved over the years. So we started right at the very beginning. So my dad was in the Navy, um, so we grew up in Portsmouth. But I remember we lived in this like lovely house at the top of a hill, and I loved it, and it had like a sandbox at the back that I absolutely loved, and it was was by far my favourite house I've ever lived in. It was amazing. And who was in your family? So it's just me, my dad, my mum and my two old brothers. My, there's a significant age gap between me and my brothers. They are 16 months apart. So when you were the baby around the house, were they good with you? <laughs> no, they absolutely hated me. <laughs> I remember at one point, I think one of them actually threw a cricket ball at my face with just pure frustration. It was like, there was this new thing that was just taking up everybody's attention and they were like no it's just it's just us like what is this person doing um with such a big age gap I was treated very quickly as an only child my brothers were at boarding school when I was born so it was just me at home um and it really kind of laid the precedent for me being kind of really special in the family but then when you were two your parents divorced yeah so um I don't actually have any memories when they were together at all because dad being in the Navy, he was actually away for most of the time when I was younger. The earliest memory I have is actually moving out of that lovely house. And I remember I was like playing a game of hide and seek with the movers and I was like hiding under the piano that sat in the hall. And I could just hear my mum like weeping. 
in the dining room and I was like this is strange but we all stayed at the Marriott hotel that night because we couldn't move into our house the next day and it's like my brothers kind of snuck me into the jacuzzi and they're like if anybody asks you're seven it's mad that he tells you remember isn't it (laughs) it's like (laughs) your mother's crying in one room but you remember the Marriott jacuzzi (laughs) I didn't sleep in my own bed until I went to boarding school at the age of eight. Where were you sleeping? Slept in my mum's every night. She got a job when we moved. Um, she started working in London. And I think like I had got such a bond with her in those early years of my life, the fact that she was no longer there every day, really I found quite traumatic. Would go into her bed every night because I felt that was the only time I could have with her. Um, and the like the, the safest place that I could be. Like I was with my mum and that's where I wanted to be. Through those first years that we moved, I can't really remember seeing my dad at all. I remember trying to run away to see him to find him on numerous occasions um, of which it would always be like towards my bedtime and I'd be in my pyjamas and my dressing gown and I'd have my backpack with my teddies in it and my mum would be like oh yeah I completely understand but why don't you wait till morning and then you can see where you're going and of course like morning comes around and when you think oh well, what was all that about kind of thing? I don't know how common it is for children to try and run away. I don't think my brothers did it at all. But he had said to us, if you want to see me, pick up the phone and I'll come. We can organise a, a date. So I didn't see him a lot at all. And I thought that that was the reason why, because I hadn't picked up the phone to arrange the, the times that I would see him. What does that mean, not a lot at all? I mean, are we talking uh, monthly or, you know, quarterly? How often were you seeing your dad? Probably no more than quarterly. We would alternate Christmas and New Year between my two parents. But it's only natural if you're seeing your mum much more if you're in a bed with your mum. When you (laughs) went to boarding school, the parent you'd be missing, I suppose, would be your mum. Yeah. Uh, When I first started boarding... I was eight and I remember I cried solidly for two weeks and then I just stopped. It was it was quite weird. I would cry every night, cry myself to sleep. I'd wake up crying for two solid weeks and then I couldn't cry anymore. And got on with it. You kind of get used to it. You get used to the fact that actually this is the way my life is. I'm going to be away from home and I've just got to do the best that I can. I completely understood why my mum did it. She was working up in London. She couldn't be back at a reasonable time to pick me up from school. Um, If she was to drop me off at school, it would be at kind of six o'clock in the morning. So it was better for my routine that I was a boarder. So she was paying the fees. Mm -hmm. What were you told about your father's contribution to your well-being? I still didn't have much of a relationship with him. And my mum had started telling me stories about what had happened you know I was getting older it was time that I knew who my father was and and why he left he had been cheating on my mum several times and she had caught him and followed him to other women's houses 
And you you were told this at the age of... 10, maybe? Nine? Yeah. Yeah. I was told that he would cheat on my mum several times. I was told that when they got divorced, he actually stole all of my mum's money and left us penniless, which is why we lived in this really horrible area of, of Portsmouth at the time. And that he refused to contribute towards the care of me. Did you feel angry towards him? Yeah. There was a time at my prep school that I remember I was having an email conversation with him and it got really heated. And this was the age of 11. And I was was telling him how awful he was. And he actually called my headmaster and said, I need to speak to Liv on the phone. I, I need to talk to her. And I just outwardly refused. I didn't want to talk to this man. To me, he was awful and I didn't want him in my life. As I was growing up and I was more and more kind of aware how much older my brothers were than me. My brothers were both planned and then I popped along, you know, eight, eight years later. I had managed to convince myself that actually I was the one who was adopted. After me going to my mother about this approximately 100 times, I was told, actually, no, I was an accident and I was the result of a condom splitting. (laughs) As I was kind of getting older, my dad remarried. He had kind of posed the question to me and my mum whether it might be better for me to live with them in a stable family home where I could be a day girl and and kind of have a relatively normal childhood away from private school. And under the advice of my mum, and I had only ever known living with her, like, really, this man was almost a stranger to me. I knew he was my father. I'd spent every other Christmas with him. But my loyalties were with my mum, and I I turned around. I had to be the one to say to him, actually I don't want to live with you I want to live with mum do you remember that conversation yeah we had that conversation in the pub he just kept asking me he I refused to give an answer he kept saying do you want to live with me do you want to live with me and it went on for almost an hour and I was crying the entire time and uh, at the end of it I said no I don't do you think he, he'd gone there to persuade you to live with him yeah absolutely he had driven down and it was, I mean, it was not a small trip for him. It was three hours in the car each way. But yeah, I turned around, he dropped me off. He didn't even say goodbye. You know, I subsequently didn't talk to my dad for 10 years. 10 years? 10 years. How did it come about that for 10 years you didn't speak to your dad? I understand the feelings you're feeling, but I suppose the point is, even if it's just every other Christmas that you see him, you know, where how comes you didn't end up at his house at Christmas time when you were 12 and 14 and 16? I refused to go. Was that a confrontation? Um, no, it was just, it was, I don't think actually ever anything was ever said. It was just, I I wasn't invited. My parents weren't talking. Uh, my brothers weren't going either. They were independent. They were going their gap years. One of them was at university. I didn't want to go, so I didn't go. Do you remember sort of painting your dad in that light to your mates when you talk yep. about your family at home? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I would just say he was awful. He was a horrible person. Like he was such such a bastard. Because that's what I have been like. That's how my mum would refer to him as. So that's what I did. I think even like 
At one point I used the word wanker because my brother had taught it to me. <laughs> and then after school, uh, you went to university? Yeah, the first year was absolutely great. Had the best time, made the best friends. And then my second year is when things really went downhill. I was living in this horrible house. I had damp that was up the wall next to my bed. I was in a relationship with a guy who was absolutely awful towards me. At this point, we had had the recession and my mum had lost her job and we very quickly ran out of money. So I was entitled to government grant or the student loans grant uh, that's given to people whose parents can't support themselves. So I was waiting for that money to come through and it never did. So I think I was living on around five pounds a week. Uh, I was trying to get a job, obviously trying to feed myself, (laughs) going to lectures and things. It got to a point and I was like, why isn't this money come through? And I was speaking to my mum and she was like, the reason why the money hasn't come through is because I haven't declared it. And I said, why? And she was like, because then they'll know that I'm bankrupt. And I put the phone down on her and I remember calling my brother and saying, I can't get a job. I'm on five pounds a week. He submitted that form for me so that I could have my money. Did you at that point think about calling your dad? No, never even crossed my mind. I I think with the money... I wasn't in control of that and I had to regain control of something. I couldn't move from where I was living. I found the gym. I was like, I I know what I can I can be sporty. I can be in control. So I would go to the gym and it started off with an hour a day and then it went to two hours. And then I think I was doing about three hour sessions in the gym and then I was like, oh, my body's changing. I no longer look slightly podgy. And uh, the calorie cutting came in. And especially as I knew I could live off no food because I had done it through no will of my own. I think I was on around 500 calories a day. Did you feel weak? Yeah, and tired. This went on well into my third year of uni. Did you, did you think you had an eating disorder? Yes. <laughs> uh, I went to an all-girls school, so it was right. <laughs> like we had our, our tray, trays with our food checked every meal to make sure we had eaten enough. Wow. I mean, there were at least five girls in my year who developed eating disorders whilst I was at my secondary school. And actually, at the age of 17, my mum got me a personal trainer for my birthday and said, this is for you to lose your muffin top. So I knew I, I, I mean, I, I don't think I was fat in any way, but I knew I was bigger than my peers. And so I, I wanted to fit in more. I always thought I stood out, but for the wrong reasons. And one of those reasons were because I was fat. But people with a very crude understanding of it often think it's to do with making yourself more conventionally attractive. But, I mean, you've already said you had a partner at this stage. It's not as if it's about attracting someone in particular, right? I mean, yeah, he... He was my partner, but he was not a nice man. He used to tell me if I ever got fat again, he would leave me. He's 
also the reason why I wear mascara every day because my blonde eyelashes used to freak them out. So I used to have to wear mascara all the time. How did that come up? I think we were just lying in bed one morning and he just said, your eyelashes are really freaking me out. I can't see them. Not in a jokey way? No. I can't be with you if you have blonde eyelashes way. Yeah. I'd just broken up with that boyfriend for the like hundredth time before we got back together again. And I got this phone call from a number I didn't recognise. And I picked up and it was my dad calling on my stepmom's phone. And at this point, I was at breaking point. We agreed that he could come down and see me. And you had not spoken to him for 10 years? No. How did it feel to hear his voice? Weird. Hadn't changed. I think it was quite a short and sweet conversation of being like, he said, I want to come and see you. And I was like, well, okay, because I'm in a really shit situation right now. And you were explicit about that? Yeah. Was there something quite liberating in a way that you didn't have a relationship with him that you could tell him those things? I presume it was hard for you to tell your mum that you had an eating disorder. Um, Actually, I didn't tell anybody I had an eating disorder until a year later. And actually, I didn't tell anybody I had an eating disorder until my stepmom told me I looked like a boy. And she was the one who helped me recover the first time. With that comment, you look like a boy? Because I mean, that that seems like quite a provocative and um, offensive statement. <laughs> she is a... Very blunt woman. <laughs> well, sometimes it's what people need to hear, isn't it? Like someone yeah, being very blunt. Absolutely. Um, she took me shopping um, for new clothes to try and make me be a, a girl, I guess, and make me see that actually I, I could look pretty. And she spent so much money on me. She gave me an entire new wardrobe off her own back just in order to help me. I am forever grateful for her for doing that because actually, even though I didn't get better, I got this newfound confidence that meant that when I finished university, I could go try and get better. And the way I did that was I went travelling for two years. What was your relationship with your dad like at that point then? I mean, it was getting better. It was getting better. That I was so angry with him. I, I was, I was still secretly seething. I thought that he had replaced me with my stepsister. My stepsister had gone to private school on, on my dad's money, which I hadn't got. She had gotten two cars by this point by my dad. Um, she had gone to university, of which I was told she didn't have a student loan that my dad had paid for her. And I remember talking to my mum about it and she was like, look, why don't you have a relationship with your dad so that you're in the will and when he pops his clogs, you can inherit some of his money. Wow. Like, if you're going to have a relationship with him, you've got to benefit from it. How is the best way that you benefit with, with him? He's a wealthy man now, so get, get his money. So after you came back from travelling, yeah, presumably you went and got a job, started up your own life. You're in London, right? Yes, I did the classic thing of moving to London. <laughs> I had a series of fairly unfulfilling jobs. I developed this fascination with donuts and I would have payday donut and that donut would not stay down very long. Um, it's a terrible thing. 
to be able to do that to yourself. But you just get into a habit. Uh, my dad was working in London, so I actually got a much better relationship with him because I would go and have dinner with him once a week. Did you connect with him over those dinners? Yeah. I, I definitely tried to feel like his daughter. But I still had in the back of my mind that he had this other daughter now. He had this new family. And that he'd abandoned you. And he'd, yeah, exactly. He'd abandoned me. Did you ever talk about and, that with him? Yeah. So my stepsister actually got married whilst I was, back, I was living in London. And I was invited to the wedding. And my dad called me one day and he was like, I was wondering if you'd come to dinner with me tonight because there's something I need to talk to you about. And I was like, oh yeah, sure, whatever. And he said, um, Camilla's asked me to walk her down the aisle and do the first dance with her and do the father of the bride speech. I don't think I cried so much in my life. So your feelings were, he's giving this person who he's not even biologically related to precedence over me. Yeah. I refused to go to the wedding. I couldn't face it. What excuse did you use? I told him the truth. I couldn't see him give another girl away. What did he say? Oh, he cried. Didn't say anything, he just cried. This evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. And then the pandemic hit. And we weren't allowed to go to the gym and I, my world crumbled. One form of exercise a day, for example, a run, walk or cycle, alone that day that we were told by Boris Johnson that we must stay inside, I sat on the sofa and I cried and my flatmate literally didn't know what to do. I was furloughed, so I didn't even have the distraction of having a job to do. It's really hard having an eating disorder because, especially when I so wanted to get better, but it, it's like having a, a split personality and the other personality was like, oh no. No, no, no. You, you have to do this. You have to exercise seven hours a day and not eat anything. That's when things started to shift as well with my relationship with my mum. I would call her on my long walk of the day uh, for our general chat. And there was one one point, and I had been really honest with her, saying, like, my eating disorders have come back, and I'm, I'm just letting you know, I'm talking to the doctor and I'm doing it. And three or four weeks into lockdown, I called her and I said, and she's like, are you out for your walk? And I was like, yeah. And she, she said, how, lo- how long are you going to walk for today? And I was like, well, I don't know, two and a half hours, three hours, however long. And she was like do you care that little about me and your brothers? She was like, you would rather kill yourself than be in this world with me and your brothers. I put the phone down and if I hadn't been wearing that coat, I would have started running. The rage just boiled up inside me. I just had all this energy and I just, I power walked around that park till I could walk no longer. I mean, I understand that she's she's saying think about what this is doing to me you know it'd be devastating for us to lose you that's what that means 
but mm. to, from her point of view, I guess, just not consider that piling guilt on top of all the other things that you're feeling isn't going to be the way to help you through this. And actually, those lockdown conversations are really quite eye-opening. She would, would say phrases to me like, you don't understand why you're so precious to me. That there's something I need to tell you that I've been meaning to tell you your whole life. Very cryptic. And I was kind of, you know, you know, like brush it off and being like, yeah, whatever, mum. But throughout my entire life, she had always been like, I love you so much. You just don't understand mm. that you're so precious to me. You're you're the light of my life. You're the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I was like, this must be not, I mean, this must be how mothers feel about their daughters. What happened? So early June, I got sent to the hospital by the doctor to get my blood pressure and my weight checked. And I had lost 15% of my weight in three weeks and my blood pressure was so low they could barely read it on their machine. And I was told that at any point my heart would stop. Did that news come as a shock? I didn't think I was that bad. Yeah, one of the things with eating disorders is the body dysmorphia. Mm. So to me, I didn't look any different. Mm. I I couldn't tell that I had lost all this weight. I still looked the same and I still looked chubby, in my opinion. And it was the second Tuesday in June. And I I called my my mum in the morning and she, I told her, I said, you know, it's, it's bad news. And I had a conversation with my boss at the time and he he was like, oh, unfortunately, we're going to have to let you go. What? In the same conversation where you're saying I've been told I might die? Yeah. And he was like, oh, unfortunately, we're going to have to let you go. And I get this another phone call from my mum. And I kind of pick up the phone and was like, oh, you never guess what? I've just just been let go. And she goes, there's something I need to tell you. And I don't know if I'll get an opportunity because you might die. And she goes, your dad isn't your real dad. I asked her to repeat it because I didn't think that I had heard correctly and she said it again. Then I got a name of this man. This man that she had loved for her entire life. The man that she had loved even when she met my dad and was having an ongoing affair with him throughout their marriage. I asked her if my dad knew, and she said yes, he did. And I was like, what does he think? And he was like, well, to him, you're his daughter, and he has been very generous in accepting you. Which was a bit of a turnaround because she had been slagging him off all these years. And I was like, now you're saying he's a generous man. <laughs> like, what, what is going on? My, my mind literally could not figure out what I was being told. I mean, there's two huge questions, obviously, that are competing for space in your head, I guess, at this point. One is the one you're exploring, you know, the guy who brought me up, what's his role in this and, and what can I do about that? And the other, of course, I guess must have been, tell me about my real dad. Yeah, so I said, does he know that I exist? And my mum said, yes, he was there at the hospital when you were born and he held you and he walked away from you. He chose not to be a part of your life, which is like the ultimate rejection, really. And she kept going, but your 
you know, your dad, your dad loves you and he loves you like his own. And he is a very generous man. And I cannot thank him enough for that. And your dad knew that your real dad had been at the hospital when you were born? Apparently so, yeah. I'm trying to think, I mean, if, I, if I was told that news, I'm trying to think what my first reaction would would be, but I'm not in your position. I don't have an eating disorder. I'm not at the lowest ebb at that point. But I, I suppose it would be, can I see a photo? Yeah, so um, obviously I had his name. I googled him and we look quite similar, yeah. He's quite, he's actually a little bit famous. So there's a Wikipedia page about him. It was bizarre. It's like your whole life has been a lie. Mm. My dad didn't know. He didn't know? He didn't know. So your mum had said that he did know, but he didn't? He didn't. My dad called me later that day and he said, no matter what, uh, you will always be my daughter. So the doctor actually advised me to leave London. I was so unwell that I actually needed to be admitted to hospital. But if I had been admitted to hospital, I would have caught coronavirus and almost definitely died. So where do you go? Um, My dad came and got me. I don't remember those first two weeks that I was there. I think I was so mentally and physically shattered that I have no memory of it. We did a paternity test. Talk me through that decision. I think it was it was both of our decisions because we just wanted to know. I, it wouldn't have changed our relationship in any way. Why did you think it might not be true? Over the past few years, my mum has been deteriorating mentally and has the early stages of onset dementia. You always have to take what she says with a bit of a pinch of salt, mm. but... When it's something so big, you're kind of like, hmm, maybe not not that big a pinch of salt on this one. We sat at the dining room table next to each other and did it together. You both have to sign forms and things like that. So we did all that. It was always like a, a little performance in a way. It's also such a deeply weird thing to do in the midst of a national lockdown and a public health pandemic, isn't it? So, I mean, everything's been odd in the context of the last year, but... You know, when you when you imagine people at home, they're not doing paternity tests. No, I mean, I'm sure the labs were kind of like, what? <laughs> we have better fish to fry, you know. Did you think about contacting this man that your mother had told you about? Yes, I definitely contemplated it, but I actually knew I would never have done it. Because he had made that decision when I was at the hospital that he didn't want a relationship with me. Right, he knows where you are. Yeah. So why would I want to have a relationship with a man who didn't want a relationship with me? How long did you have to wait? Four days. Was that a long four days? Very long four days. It was also heightened to the fact that I had now had to start eating again and I wasn't allowed to exercise. So it made it seem even longer Mm. um, because you're kind of battling the day-to-day stuff whilst in the back of your brain you've got this lingering thought that actually these people that are now looking after you that are wanting you to get better could just be doing it because they're nice. I'm guessing the result just comes through in an envelope. Email, actually. Right. I mean, I would get a brandy at that point. That is what I would do. (laughs) How did you steady your nerves? 
Uh, so it's about 11 o'clock in the morning. I didn't get the email and my dad did. And he had been checking it religiously every like 10 minutes for the past four days. And it came through and I think I was outside. It was one of the really hot days. And he came and he, he just gave me a hug. And he was like, you're 99.99% mine. How did you feel? Relieved. Happy. I think it was like all the joyous things of being like, wow, I'd actually spent all that time rebuilding a relationship with somebody who is actually my father. Mm. But then it hit me. Why would on earth would my mother tell me that? She loved me so much. Why would she then try and tell me that my dad was not my dad? And what did you answer to that question? She didn't want me to go to go up there to get better. But she had fabricated this story to stop me going because why would I go and stay with somebody who wasn't related to me? I sent her a letter with the results and I, in the letter I told her that it was the most hurtful thing she had ever done to me and for her not to contact me until I am ready. And have you felt ready yet? No. So this woman who used to sleep in her bed that you used to speak to weekly on the phone when you were at school and then every day during the virus initially, you haven't spoken to or seen for a year now? Yeah. I think about her daily. It feels weird. There are, there are times that like, I go out for a walk now, <laughs> my allocated walk of the day. And it, it is, it's, it's a habit that I would get up and I would call her. And, and now I, I sometimes have to stop myself and I, I listen to music or I listen to a podcast or I call my brother. I, I miss her terribly, but it was the most unforgivable thing she's ever done. Do you know how she feels about it now? Mm, so my brothers kind of vaguely tell me. Apparently she did think this man was my father for my life. Um, that part was real. But now she's turned it so it's all my fault. Which I suppose if you're being charitable, you can put down to her dementia. And that complicates things, doesn't it? That plays on my mind all, all the time. She's tithing 70 very soon. And I would be surprised if she lasts much longer should we say she's not the healthiest person anyway but she she lives in this intense paranoia as well I do think like should I get back in contact and every time I think it I'm just so angry that I know I can't do it yet and my therapists have also told me not not to yet not I'm not ready and yet you wrote to us because you wanted to talk to us about it. Why did you do that? Why did you feel this need to share the story, but you're not ready to speak to your mum? Since I've been in therapy, obviously, I've had a lot of conversations about it. Um, obviously about this and trying to get better from my eating disorders. And what I have been through my entire life with my mum is what's known as emotional abuse, which is a form of domestic abuse 
what it's manifested in is um is this sense of guilt so my mum sacrificed her life and her money to put me through the best education I could have to dress me in the nicest clothes to be successful woman with a husband and a wonderful family and I haven't ever lived up to that she would just be immensely disappointed and do you think that disappointment that she was expressing to you actually came from her own sense of her own tragedy the man she thought was your father was a man that she was in love with who then abandoned her and you when you were born and then her way of dealing with it obviously terribly in retrospect but her way of dealing it was to try and distance you from the man she thought wasn't your father um and so like from her perspective you know that's there's 28 years where she was disappointed in herself yeah exactly she's so unhappy herself but instead of seeking help for it to find peace and move on she projected it all on me she refuses to see anybody about it because therapists are a waste of time but I'm the one who's had to suffer and deal with it I'm the one who's been the constant disappointment I've been the product of a relationship that in her mind that was the best relationship of her life the man that she's always loved and it's now not the case. And it must be soul-destroying for her. I guess the issue is, you know, we can all hear from the way you're articulating your own story with such honesty and precision that actually you, you have processed it and you do have a take on it. You have a thing you'd like to say to her. You're not ready to do that yet, but you're in a race with her own mental ability to be able to hear it. Do you see what I mean? You could get to the point where you're finally ready and she's literally incapable of receiving it. Yeah. I don't know if if there's any chance or point in me saying it to her because she's now in a stage of her mental capacity where whatever I say will be wrong. And I will now always be the villain in her life. I presume your relationship with your father, though, has intensified yeah top top notch (laughs) i mean if you were to meet me and him now you wouldn't have any doubt that we were father and daughter with a copy of each other yes he has this other family but i'm now becoming part of that other family and i cannot tell you how much happier i am i don't think i've ever been this happy in my entire life And that's because I'm free. Olivia's story. And if you've been affected by the issues raised in her interview, there are links to services that offer support in the show notes. Coming up next, your sex questions with Alex Fox. That's after this. Time for the Foxhole, your questions of sex with Alex Fox. And it's February, so I guess it's kind of the month of love, isn't it? Valentine's Day, Alex? Well, Jerry Davies and his partner Ellie have decided that uh, this Valentine's, the new thing that everybody with a penis is going to be doing is ball sex. Uh, They have invented a brand new uh, sex toy, and this really is unlike anything I've ever seen before. In a nutshell, it is a type of nutshell. 
that, that goes around your balls and allows you to penetrate a partner's vagina, mouth, anus with your balls. It's a, it's a bullet-shaped silicone cage that you stuff your nuts in. Um, it, it's kind of elastic at the top. Um, if you go to their website, baldo.com, then you can see videos <laughs> and pictures of this thing in action. Um, but yeah, you, you pop this sort of pointy cage on your nads and then you add rings to stretch your your whole scrotum downwards and extend the length of it so it so it it turns basically into a penis is the sensation of the restrictiveness of the cage in itself supposed to be pleasurable apparently it's not painful they've tested it on a variety of people and they variously described the sensations as being like you say like a pleasant type of constriction and restriction um others compared it to a little bit like the feeling of getting your balls sucked during during a sexual encounter um all of them said that the feeling of actually putting their their nads inside another person was just mind-blowingly brand new for the women involved again i think it was just it was a, a crazy sensation well there you are an alternative idea for Valentine's Day. And to think, I, I was just going to get a dress lobster from Marks and Spencer. Uh, right, time for your questions of sex. Uh, this one comes from a man called James, uh, who says, uh, Alex, first off, I want you to know, I absolutely adore this segment. As a 23-year-old gay man living in London, I've had my fair share of sex, and I feel like I've cultivated a keen interest in it. Not only practically, but theoretically. I adore conversation about sex and my friends' questions about the ins and outs, pun intended. He's a fan. <laughs> uh, and so your segment has given me validation that my fascination is nothing to be ashamed of or kept quiet. Although maybe the time I got drunk at Christmas and paraded around the family home in a leather harness may have been a step too far. Yes. Although I have access to gay dating apps, gay Twitter and the like, I find myself drawn more and more to wanting sex with close gay friends. Mm. Fantasising about strangers doesn't do it for me. And the idea of hooking up with a close friend as a casual thing is incredibly arousing. Occasionally this want has put me in a rather awkward position where I have voiced my kink and have been decidedly shut down, sometimes with worse consequences. What should I do? I know friends with benefits is an option. But people I've known for years are in principle against it. And then he puts in brackets, shitting where they eat. I mean, he's saying gay man fantasising about sex with gay friends, but I'm not sure this is an exclusively uh, homosexual question, isn't it? Plenty of us have sexual fantasies about friends, whether or not they're of the same sexual orientation. I don't think this is an exclusively homosexual dilemma, but I do think the context of being a young gay man and the culture uh, and arguably expectations surrounding being a young gay man uh, frame this question differently. So to that end, um, I asked a variety of gay sex and dating experts for their input here, because I think this is a really juicy question. I mean, the man from Del Monte is jealous of this, but I don't feel as a straight woman like I can fully appreciate all of the factors that might be influencing this person and indeed affecting his friends' reactions to what's going on. Um, so first of all, I chatted to the wonderful Justin Myers, who some people might know as the guy liner. Um, he's written a, a, a load of novels, The Magnificent Sons, The Last Romeo. He's also very funny on Twitter if you don't want to pay money for his books. <laughs> <laughs> he suggested that James might be 
demisexual and that what he's talking about here in only desiring sex with his friends, only feeling attracted to somebody who he has uh, an emotional connection with and, and that that bond uh, could be an expression of demisexuality. Um, demisexual people say that they just can't get turned on really or they, that they don't have any desire to, to fuck somebody or to play with somebody unless they already feel close to them. To test that, he might find that um, if other characteristics like the way somebody physically looks um, or their body, their build are less important to him than this strong emotional connection, then that could hint towards demisexuality. Um, Justin also pointed out that um, James has what could be interpreted as a fairly clinical approach to sex, this idea of cultivating a keen interest, looking at sex philosophically, that could potentially suggest demisexuality too. Except he hasn't said, I mean, it's implied, but he hasn't said that he's disappointed with his experiences on gay dating apps. He's saying, in addition to this, basically, I'm attracted to my close friends or I find myself drawn to that. Yes, it might be the case that um, he has tried a whole different variety of flavours of sex and having sex with friends is one of the few things that he hasn't done and that that, that um, uh, exoticism is has become eroticism for him. It's the forbidden fruit. Well, it's not totally forbidden though, is it? Because the, the cliche would be the gay man who fantasises after his straight best friends. But it's interesting to me that he's interested in his gay friends. So the friends for whom it's presumably not completely off the menu. I mean, that's what's titillating about it, isn't it? There's a possibility. I think you've hit on a very interesting thing about gay culture with an assumption you've just made there, Ollie, which is that because somebody is gay, even if they're in a relationship or even if they are your friend and your connection has always been just solely one of friendship that there is a possibility. I wonder if we would be so quick to say that about straight people. Um, do you, before you were married, did you consider all of your female friends as potential fuck buddies? Well, I mean, this has been examined at length by Nora Ephron. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to be able to answer that question in one minute. But I mean, I suppose there's a spectrum, isn't there, is the answer to that? I would argue, and several other people that I spoke to, um, Skylar Wang, who is a, a brilliantly named uh, sociologist and uh, gay relationship specialist from California, Topher Taylor, who uh, hosts the Sex with Topher podcast, uh, people who are really immersed in gay culture and have studied it in depth, um, said to me that there is a lot of presumption that if somebody is gay, they are hypersexual. And even if they're your mate, they might well be up for fucking or playing with you. But this is the presumption from another gay man. This isn't presumption from a straight person who doesn't understand gay culture. I guess my point is, there is this idea within some, not all, of gay communities that your friend, that your buddy, your pal, if they are gay too, then there is a high likelihood that you will get to sleep with them. Some people don't want to be seen as potential conquests like that. They might just genuinely want to be your friends. Being gay doesn't mean that you want to fuck everybody. And um, 
presuming that that is the case may be seen as uh, as offensive by some people this may be what what is happening in in James's circumstances he might have buddies who really prize the fact that they are just and I say that in inverted commas because as Justin pointed out friendship is a wonderful thing friendship can be the true love of your life really we talk quite negatively about friendship sometimes in comparison to sexual relationships we use phrases like being friends Owned, which suggests that if somebody doesn't want to sleep with you and wants to be your buddy, that that's somehow lesser of a relationship. And um, that's not the case. It might be that James's friends really prize and really value the, the friendly connections that they have with him. They might not want to risk something changing in that dynamic by having sex with him. They may object to being seen as potential notches on a bedpost that might make them feel quite uh, like they're being framed as pieces of meat or they may become suspicious especially if James is presenting this desire as a kink quote unquote that um, the only reason he's ever formed a friendship with them is because ultimately he wants to pursue something sexual. They might feel a bit used or a bit misled. Yeah I mean the, the point James is that this might be about them not you. You know, he's sort of written this as if, like, you know, what can I, what can I do to change the way they think about this proposal? And actually, it might be that their sexual experiences aren't what yours are. Maybe they're not confident in bed. Maybe they see you as a friend, and they don't, they don't want to get into the messy business of having a sexual relationship with someone who they do value as a friend. Yes, absolutely. He doesn't say whether some of these friends are already in relationships. Again, there is often an assumption that gay men, even if they are dating uh, and committed to somebody else, that there will be a, a greater likelihood of a degree of openness. Whereas that might be the case um, if we're talking about averages, not everybody is average. If James is coming on to people who are in established monogamous relationships, they, they might be understandably pissed off about that. James, earlier in his letter, um, talks about himself as somebody whose identity is quite tied to talking loudly and proudly about sex. And uh, perhaps he's kind of known as the wild one who always talks about the, the crazy leather harness stuff and things like that. If he is coming out with pretty full-on OTT requests to his friends and, and maybe framing his desires in an overtly sexual manner and like, you know, really coming on to them hard, um, then that, that might not go down very well. The fact that James says he's been decidedly shut down, sometimes with worse consequences, which sounds like his friendships might be ending or he's been shamed in some way or told off for the way he's approached things, suggests to me that his approach may be rather heavy handed or makes people feel disrespected or like they don't have an easy out. Um, I think if you are going to approach a friend, you need to do so with respect, with delicacy and make it very clear that the friendship will not be affected if they choose to say no and that you will accept and respect that no if that's what they decide to tell you. I think foregrounding any approach to a friend by making it clear that you prize their friendship and that you are not just hanging around with them and spending time with them because you want to fuck them is absolutely paramount in this situation. 
if you look at gay Twitter, if you look at uh, gay hookup apps, things like that, it can actually seem like quite an intimidatingly intense scene. It's very colourful. You know, there's lots of um, references to uh, multi-person sex, gangbangs, outdoor sex, uh, open relationships, things like that. James stresses very much ostensibly that he's trying to be open-minded about that he's trying to throw himself into it um but without wanting to psychoanalyze too much he might actually be finding that a little overwhelming uh, and he might also have been given the impression as a young gay man that that is chucking yourself into something and being kinky and fetishistic and full-on is the only valid sexual choice as a gay man, which might be why he sees his uh, desire towards uh, a more emotionally involved uh, relationship with somebody like a friend to be a kink. That might be why he's framing that as a fetish, because he sees it as such a contrastingly different thing. Not your textbook sex, like a gangbang or a foursome. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. He might be thinking that this is a kinky thing uh, and framing it as such, when it's actually might even subconsciously be a reaction to being overwhelmed by a, a, a world which, no shame here, it's a, it's a wonderful thing if it's what if that's really what you want, but that isn't the only way to have sex as a gay man. However, you interpret your his situation and the psychology behind it, what we do know is that James desires to be friends with somebody that he wants to have sex with. There are a number of ways that he can fulfil that desire without coming on to the mates that he already has who might be offended or it certainly sounds like that's not something that they want. Uh, One way that Topher suggested is to check out a website called Fab Guys. It's like the queer version of Fab Swingers. It's an old school sex website format where you have to put up quite a detailed profile about yourself, your likes, your dislikes, photos, what your limits are in bed, what your kinks are. Um, and there's a lot of conversation that's encouraged there so even though it's definitely a sex focused site it is possible to make a friendly connection with someone and kind of for them to become more of a buddy or something approximating that before you go into the full on fucking so there's at least a run up towards the hookup. Um, I chatted to uh, another gay friend of mine called Declan, he is somebody who quite likes to have an emotional connection with somebody rather than just um, have having a random fumble fumble in the dark and he goes to when it's safe to do so saunas gay saunas and gets chatting to regulars because that way he knows he's going somewhere where he can see people who are familiar to him they already have a history they know what their shared interests are there's that buddy kind of vibe there's that that friendship feeling but he also knows that those people are in that particular environment because they are up for sex so it combines those two things of course consent is still vital here but making friends with people in a sexual environment like that Hmm. might be another way of going about fulfilling this desire well james i hope as a fan of the segment that uh, that answer has um, satisfied your needs um, which clearly are many. Um, uh, if you have a question of sex for Alex to answer in a future episode of The Foxhole, what do you need to do with it? Head on over, not to the sauna, but to modernman.co.uk and hit feedback. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this month's Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new man ambassador. It is Alex Pearson from Bahrain. 
who says, Oli, thank you for producing your wonderful show. I've listened from the very beginning and have enjoyed every episode along the way. Even I couldn't say that. Uh, I live and teach in Bahrain and would like you to consider me as my ambassador for two reasons. One, Bahrain is so small it doesn't even appear on the ambassador map. And two, I have finally got around to donating some beer money. Uh, Alex, those are both stellar reasons, but your main selling point was your politeness. I'd let you teach my children. Uh, with which I now pronounce you Manbassador for Bahrain. Congratulations. Uh, if you would like to be a Manbassador, buy us a beer and drop us a line. Details on our website, modernmanwith2ns.co.uk. Until next time, our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill. And we'll see you with something new on March the 10th. Scented candles. Media streaming hub. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revelhorwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.